to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. When historians report there were 160,000 men more or less at the Battle of Gettysburg, or whatever number they give, they base those numbers on the records kept by the armies of Lee and Meade who fought there. What they leave out are the thousands of civilians who lived in the town of Gettysburg and endured the storm of battle as it raged through the streets for three days. If you go to Gettysburg today, you can still see many houses that were standing at that time, And at one of them, the Shriver House, you can learn the story of the family that lived there and how the war affected them before, during, and after the battle. We'll discuss this fascinating story with Nancy W. Goodmestead, director of the Shriver House Museum in Gettysburg. That's tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you, as is often the case, from the third floor of the Brewster Building, Office A320, on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, part of the UNC system, but not speaking for the University of North Carolina system or ECU or any other component of the state government or anybody else, in fact, just for myself. And my guest will, of course, do the same, as is always the case here at Civil War Talk Radio. It is a beautiful September evening in 2017. If you're not listening live and wondering when we recorded this, it is uh, really a lovely night out. It's September 20th. Yesterday was September 19th, which is uh, annual talk like a, international Talk Like a Pirate Day. Uh, fortunately, that was yesterday. had the show fallen on the 19th today i would be forced to do the entire show in pirate lingo for you and and we would both get tired of that in about 30 seconds so fortunately we we can avoid that Uh, speaking of pirates 
The East Carolina Pirates this past weekend took on a nationally ranked team from Virginia and came up with an outstanding result uh, in in football, by which I mean uh, football with the feet, or soccer as Americans call it. The ECU women's soccer team tied UVA 1-1 to in double overtime. UVA was number five in the country. This is the first time the Pirate soccer women have ever uh, earned a draw with a top five ranked national team. It was a great result. Uh, apparently, the men's football team also played a team from Virginia, and they ran out of zeros on the scoreboard to keep track of how many of the other guys scored. It was 60 zillion to 17. So we won't talk about that one. Uh, it is never too early to mark your calendars for next May, May of 2018, and the This Hallowed Ground tour of Civil War sites. It's May 19th to 27th. You can find that at Stephen Ambrose Tours. And it's also never too early to mark your calendars for another event uh, that, that I've, I haven't promoted in the past, only because I haven't really thought of it, but probably should have. This is the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College. It is a very uh, well-established and well-organized program that brings together academic speakers, public history speakers, enthusiasts uh, to present a series of programs. This year it's from June 22nd to June 27th, 2018. So uh, consider if you're able to get away for one week, do one of those. Two weeks, do them both. Do one this year, another the next. And this year at Civil War Institute, uh, Civil War Talk Radio will be there. I'm planning to attend and have been invited to conduct some interviews on site with some of the up-and-coming scholars who've been invited who maybe don't have books out yet, and also with others from uh, various public uh, locations, various Park Service people and other museum or battlefield personnel. So maybe it's it's up in the air quite how we're going to do this, maybe interview two or three people at a time, do a little roundtable. Uh, it'll be very interesting to see. It'll be a new direction for Civil War Talk Radio, and I'm appreciative of uh, Dr. Peter Carmichael, the director of the Civil War Institute. Uh, Pete is is an old friend. I've known him through the years. Many years ago, we both applied for a job uh, in Washington, D.C., I think it was, the uh, uh, the soldier's home. I think that was the position, and uh, he ended up getting that job, which I could understand. He was uh, highly qualified and, and certainly earned that. And then when the Civil War Institute position opened up, when Gabor Borat, legendary Lincoln scholar, retired, uh, I was asked to interview for that job as well, and I, I was not planning to move from ECU. We just moved here. wasn't going to move my family again. But I did interview. Uh, and once again, Pete got that job. So I've learned not to interview for any jobs that Pete Carmichael is competing for. But uh, it will be a great program and a new direction for Civil War Talk Radio to do some on-site interviews, maybe multiple uh, guest interviews, Keep your eye uh, on that calendar and come out and join uh, the crew at the Civil War Institute. It is a really great location. Obviously, there are battlefield tours as well as uh, talks and roundtables, all kinds of good stuff. 
so that will fill the need for uh, that will also help me line up the fall calendar with lots of uh, fresh faces to be guests on the show. I don't know if it's the 1,000 likes on Facebook, but over the last couple of weeks, I've received more uh, emails or books in the mail from people who are interested in appearing on the show. And it's almost at the tipping point where uh, I really have to start cutting out folks. Uh, typically, you listeners will suggest interesting names. I'll contact the person or I'll come up with someone interesting or a publisher will send me something interesting. And, and We've never had a problem finding plenty of people to be on the show, but uh, not every. At this point, there are so many suggestions and uh, names coming in that not everyone will, will necessarily find a place. Which is, I, I wish we could, but that's what happens. And the result is, it's something like what you see in the back of an academic journal, the books received column. If you're an author, you never want to find your book there because it means the publisher sent it to be reviewed and the journal has not sent it out to a reviewer for whatever reason. They don't think it's important enough to make the cut. And so they just list it in the books received column, a bad place to be. So I'm kind of starting a books received column here and uh, I'm holding one volume here. I don't want to be overly specific and imply anything negative about the author, but it's a book about uh, Confederate horses, not as far as I can tell the, the uh, um, not like from a logistical standpoint, you know, how horses were acquired and treated and so on, which could be an interesting book, but famous Confederate war horses, like individual portrayals of specific horses. Uh, we're not going to do that one. Um, we'll just put that on the other pile, move that one over there. Okay, uh, plenty of other interesting ones coming up, though. Among the interesting ones coming up, um, we've got uh, next week Jeff Richman with a book about the gallant Sims, a Civil War hero rediscovered. On October 4th, Ken Heinemann, Civil War Dynasty, the Ewing family of Ohio. Uh, the Ewings related to the Shermans, uh, soldiers in their own right. On October 11th, Kate Lineberry has a book about Robert Smalls, the remarkable uh, enslaved person in South Carolina who escaped, captured a Confederate gunboat, did all kinds of things. I'm not going to uh, spoil the story. We'll hear about it from uh, the author. On October 18th, a uh, book I've been looking forward to talking about, not so much the book itself, it's called The American War, and it's a textbook that covers the entire uh, Civil War, but the co-authors are Joan Waugh and Gary Gallagher, both have been on the show before, and uh, Professor Waugh will be joining us to talk about how one compresses a event like the Civil War into textbook format, what you cover, what you omit. I'm, I'm very curious to get her take on that. I'm using the book in class this semester, so it'll be uh, a discussion I'm really interested in having. And uh, we'll wrap up here, October 25th, D.H. Dilbeck, a new book called A More Civil War, How the Union Waged a Just War. And I'm highly interested in talking with this uh, young scholar. That should be uh, looking forward to reading it and sharing it with you. So all kinds of good stuff coming up. Go to uh, 
www.impedimentsofwar.org. Find out what's going on. Go to the Facebook page, Impediments of War. Mark Gaffney runs both of those and keeps us informed what's happening. And one last thing, if hearing my voice on the show whets your appetite to hear my voice even more, and that is hard to imagine, this past week I recorded a podcast with Mark Bielski, a historian and author of a book on Polish Americans in the war. He was interviewed here last year. Mark turned the tables. He has started his own history podcast, uh, and the September 20, that's today, uh, September 20 issue of Mark Bilski's podcast is an interview with me discussing the uh, campaigns in the East in 1862. So if you uh, want to hear me on the other side of the microphone, it's markbielski.com, Mark, M-A-R-K-B-I-E-L-S-K-I.com slash podcasts. And September 20 is where you will find me getting it, giving the answers instead of the questions. It was an interesting experience to play the other role for a change. Well, tonight, I go back to the traditional role and ask the questions of our guest. Uh, she is Nancy Goodmestead, who is the director of the Shriver House Museum in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, a uh, fascinating place that I visited for the first time with the Stephen Ambrose tours a few years ago, had no idea really what it was or how it would be run and came away tremendously impressed. And uh, let's find out more about the Shriver House and its director. Uh, Nancy, are you there? I am, Jerry. Thank you so much for having me. Well, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, Tell tell us a, a little bit about your background. How did you come to be connected to the, the Shriver House in, in Gettysburg? Well, I never imagined myself being here, but um, I grew up in Philadelphia. Um, my mm-hmm. husband and I were both in the computer industry there way back when, and we watched a little bit too much of that Bob Newhart show where he had a bed and breakfast, <laughs> and we thought, well, shoot, we could do that. So we literally sold everything that we owned, and we bought a very huge house here in Gettysburg, uh, with ten original bedrooms, five fireplaces, it was beautiful. And we opened up the very first bed and breakfast here in Gettysburg. And it didn't take us long to figure out that we were lucky to have people from really all over the world who were coming to Gettysburg to learn about the battle. And they would sit around the breakfast table every morning talking about General Lee and General Meade and General <clears throat> this and that and the wheat field and the peach orchard. But the one thing that just we kept noticing was that they never talked about the people who lived here. So my husband and I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to fix up an old house and tell the stories of families that lived in town here and their experiences during the battle, with the idea of telling the stories of many, many different families. So we looked for a couple of years, and one day we happened upon, well, we knew this house was here, but we asked our realtor about this this abandoned-looking green house that was painted green right in the middle of Baltimore Street in the middle of town. And it was a mess. And he said, ah, some old man owns that, and he's never going to sell it. So, of course, 9 o'clock the next morning, I was at the courthouse to figure out who owned the house. And it turns out he was a friend of ours. He was an older gentleman. And my husband and I, Dell and I, went to see him and asked if he would like to sell it. And we told him exactly what we wanted to do. And he smiled, and he listened, and he listened, and he finally just said, nope. And we were both very disappointed. 
So because he was a friend of ours, over the next year, I would say, honestly, probably 70 times, I made him uh, Tuesday cupcakes, Halloween cakes, Easter cupcakes, Easter pies, Christmas cookies, all sorts of things. And I'd just go and sit and talk with him. And sometimes we would talk about the house and sometimes we wouldn't. But he knew why I was there. And finally, after about a year one day, he smiled and he said to me, oh, my word. He said, if I say yes, will you leave me alone? And I said, well, I'll, I'll still come visit you, but it won't be nagging me anymore. And it's that. So, did, did he live in the house at the time? He did not. What? Okay. He lived nearby. Mm-hmm. But it's that he allowed us to go in. We still had never seen the inside of the house. And okay. He, he didn't come over to show us the house. His wife did. And we stood on the front porch for about 15 minutes in the freezing cold in January. And she just couldn't get the door open. And she finally said to my husband, would you mind trying? I just can't do this. And so we're passing time talking. And finally I said, well, my goodness, Peg, when's the last time you were in here? And she really gave it a hard thought. I thought she was going to say six months ago to check something out or whatever. She said, I guess it's been close to, oh, I don't know, maybe 30 years. Wow. And that, the door cracked. We came inside, and it looked like it had been sitting there for 30 years with nobody on the inside. And as we walked around the house, my husband's looking at this mess saying, oh, my God, look at that. Oh, my God. And I'm looking around saying, oh, my God, look at that. Look at that. And she finally laughed and she said, you know, you two use, are using the same words, but you are not saying the same thing. So, well, so you well, guys really found a, a, a treasure here uh, that had been did. lying fallow. We're going to take a short break and, and come back in just a moment and find out more about how this house uh, came back to life, as it were, as the Shriver House Museum. We're talking today with the director of Gettysburg's Shriver House Museum, Nancy Goodenstead. And I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. 
If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Nancy Goodmistead. She is the director of the Shriver House Museum in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. It's there on Baltimore Street. Uh, looks like a row house uh, right next to all the others with the plaque on the wall that says this building was here in 1863. And it... Uh, it tells a remarkable story of uh, the people who were there at the time. Uh, we were discussing in our first segment how, Nancy, how you and your husband came to obtain the house and uh, discovered upon upon the first visit that, that no one had been inside in 30 years. Mm-hmm. And it was a disaster. No electric, no water, uh, broken windows. Uh, we were told by a neighbor that at one point there were 30 cats living inside the house. Mm. But I do believe in my heart that this was meant to be because uh, we got very excited and uh, my husband was not quite as excited, but eventually he came around (laughs) and we started making plans to restore the house to its original condition. And we were so, so lucky that because the house had been sitting empty for 30 years, it really had been altered very, very little. Only one major change was made to the house and in uh, 1905, two small additions were added to the back of the house, and in those additions, that's where they put indoor plumbing, bathrooms, and kitchens, and because they put the modern things in the back additions, that means everything in the original house was original. Floorboards, doors, windows, locks, wood trim, it was all original. It was just unbelievable that this beautiful jewel that looked abandoned and looked pretty sad and ugly was sitting here untouched for all those years. So we bought the house, we got an architect, we started working on the building, and, and all along I was trying to compile a tour to tell the stories, and we wanted to draw in other families around town and connect those to the house in some way and tell the stories. But in the middle, we started piecing together the story of the family who built the house. Turns out no one in town, not even the National Park, knew the story of this young family. And it turns out that the house was built in 1860. At the end of 1860, we believe they moved in just before Christmas in 1860. Mm-hmm. So the war had not started for a couple of more months. And they were a very young, wealthy couple. George and Hetty Schreiber were both born on farms out of town, outside of town. When George was only 15, his father died, and George inherited a very large family farm that included two 60-foot still houses, a huge, beautiful stone farmhouse that was built in 1790 and about 3,000 gallons of liquor because it turns out the Schreiber family had been making whiskey on that farm since the 1780s. And this was a very, very wealthy family. In the 1700s, we found an inventory of the property. It included two still houses, uh, a 60-foot barn, uh, log cabin, that the family lived in it in the 1780, early 80s, mm-hmm. um, a, a mill house, uh, a blacksmith shop, and they had a weaving building. And in that building in the 1780s, they had seven spinning wheels valued at $100 a piece. So this was Which, a very wealthy family. So, George, so they, go ahead, yes. 
So George eventually, at 18 years old, he marries a neighbor girl, Hetty Weikert, uh, daughter of Jacob Weikert, who lives on Tawnytown Road, who also had a very large farm. They were very well-to-do. But after a few years, they decided they didn't want to live outside of town. They wanted to live in town and open a new business. So they bought the property. They paid $290 for the lot. And they built a quite a beautiful home for the time period. But also George's business was Shriver's Saloon and Ten Pin Alley. In the cellar of their home, he built a uh, saloon. And in the backyard, he built a 14 by 65 foot, fully enclosed, two-lane, ten pin bowling alley. Wow. little odd for the 1860s. And in the restoration, we also discovered that uh, George... we got all of his military records. He enlisted in 1861. He mustered into Cole's Cavalry in uh, Emmitsburg, Maryland in 1861. And so he went off to fight, leaving Henrietta, his wife, uh, and that, at that point um, they had two little girls when they moved into the house, Sadie and Molly, who were three and five years old. George was off to fight, leaving them alone. George got the business all ready to go. Everything was furnished, the, the saloon, the bowling alley was all ready to go. But he decided, you know, let me go away to fight, and then I'll have everything ready. When I come home, I can open up, up my doors, and things will be ready to go. Well, two years go by. George still hasn't come back home. And then the war comes to the streets of Gettysburg. When they started setting up cannons in front of the house, Hetty Shriver was only 27. She had two little girls, seven and five. Where do you want to be? You want to be with your mom and dad. So she collected her two little girls. She walked three miles through the middle of the fighting to get to her parents' farmhouse. The Jacob Weicker farm that she walked to sits at the bottom of the hills between Big Round Top and Little Round Top. So they truly jumped from the frying pan and into the fire. They spent three, seven actually, horrendous days there. They sat, they were there through the battle, and then after the battle, the Weicker farm was used as a hospital. There were over or almost a thousand wounded soldiers treated just on that one farm alone. Now. One way we know about this, uh, and I want to mention this now, and I'm sure we'll talk about it further, is that they, uh, they, they when they went out to the farm, she took someone else with her uh, who, who later wrote about it. She did. Uh, uh, before she left here, she went to the next-door neighbors. That was the Pierce mm-hmm. family. Mr. Pierce ran a butcher shop there, and they had several children, and she asked if, uh, Hetty asked if the Pierces would like her to take their 15-year-old daughter along with her out to the parents' farm, and she did, and we are so grateful. Her name was Tilly Pierce. She was 15. Tilly ended up writing a book many years later about what they went through out there on the battlefield and also back at what her father here at home saw happening inside the Shriver's home because the house was sitting there empty, and we are quite grateful. That's sort of where we began to learn a little bit about the family who lived in the house, the abandoned house that we purchased. And from there, so, we just started doing lots of research. And listeners, if you want to read that story for yourself, the book is called At Gettysburg or What a Girl Saw and Heard of the Battle by Tilly Pierce Alleman, or her married name. Uh, it's it's now public domain. You can probably find it online. But Nancy, you sell copies of that in your... We do, and we have it on our st- website for sale. I, I highly recommend this. It's a, a wonderful... Uh, first-person account of the battle from the very different viewpoint of a 15-year-old girl mm-hmm. rather than a soldier. And uh, I 
I bought a copy when I first visited your place and read it. And before the show tonight, I was trying to pull it off the shelf just to have it at hand and couldn't find it. And I remember lending it to someone, but I don't remember who. Uh, and off it went. So I'm going to have to dip into the Civil War uh, talk radio book fund and get another copy. But listeners, you really will will enjoy this uh, short but but very vivid picture of what happened to uh, uh, to Tilly and, and the girls and uh, and everyone in that area. So this was this uh, Nancy was was a, a key source in finding out what had gone on at the home during the battle for you. Is yes. that right? Yes. When they came home, of course, the town was just devastated. And when Hetty talked to Mr. Pierce later on, she found out that during the battle, while everybody in town was hiding in their cellars, Mr. Pierce was curious and went up into his attic to look out the window to watch the shooting right there in the streets of town. But when he did, he noticed across his side yard, he could see into the Shriver's attic window, and he saw that the attic was just filled with Confederate sharpshooters. He watched them punch holes through the brick walls to shoot their rifles through. And when my husband and I were restoring the house, and somebody said to me, did you ever read Tilly Pierce's book? And I said, no, I have no idea who she is. I went out and bought the book, and I literally cried because she, Hetty Shriver took her to her parents' farm, and that's how we began to learn and understand the story. And from there, of course, it just exploded. Um, but her, her book is so graphic, and uh, it's, just, it's, it's almost hard to read for, uh, to think of what these little girls, Sadie and Molly, went through at five and seven. But anyhow, um, one day when we were in the middle of the restoration, we were working in the attic. We were working on the chimney up there, and our brick mason was working there. And the night before, I had read Tilly's book. So the next morning, my husband and I were standing in the attic of the Shriver's home. The stonemason was working there. And I said to him, oh, my God, this is so sad. I read this young girl's book last night, and during the battle, her father could see into the Shriver's house and on this, he saw them, this Confederate soldiers, knocking holes through the second floor. And today, sadly, um, there is a house attached to the Shriver's home. This was, not, this was built as a freestanding home. Over the mm-hmm. years, ha- houses were built next to each other, so they do appear to look like row houses, but they really were not built that way. They were built, built decades apart. But mm-hmm. the house next door is attached to the second floor of our house. And I said, oh, isn't that so sad? It's attached. We'll never see them. And Gary, the brick mason, stood up and he said, it is not attached on the second floor. And I said, yes, it is. Look out the window. And he said, no, no, no. In the old days, it was called the ground floor, what we call the first floor. The first floor was what we call the second floor. And we were now standing on the second floor from the 1860s language. And at that, we looked at the wall. And we had noticed that there were two areas that were really kind of looking funny from the rest of the wall. And, of course, we just knew right away that cannonballs had burst their way through that wall. And uh, so he said to us, do you want us to try? you want me to try? So he took a little tiny hammer, and he went over, and he barely tapped it, and all the bricks just fell out. And he tapped the other one, and all the bricks fell out. And then we were so excited. We were looking around, and we had some... uh, fellows doing some work underneath the attic floorboards, and we looked under the attic floorboards, and sure enough, right underneath one of those holes, we found six Civil War bullets, three of them still live ammunition with the um, gunpowder attached to the back of the bullet. So at that point, we knew something really did happen right here. We found about 50 or 60 percussion caps that were down there. Uh, Underneath one of those holes, in the entire attic, there is only one floorboard that has a big 
gap in it. It's about an inch and a half wide, and it just so happens that it's sitting directly underneath that hole, and that's where we found the bullets. And Mr. Pierce also witnessed uh, Confederate soldiers shot and killed. He watched a soldier being killed in that room. And we've always been curious, and finally a few years ago I was very lucky. I was contacted by a Niagara Falls Police Department uh, detective, and he was looking for a place where blood was shed but sat untouched for many years. And he said he found us on our, our website, and he said, this is exactly what I'm looking for. Because it was an attic, it wouldn't have been scrubbed or painted or polyurethane. And so he came with a couple of fellows. They, they actually were testing a new product called Blue Star. It was supposed to be better than Luminol. And when he sprayed it, I'm not sure who was more excited, him or us. He was excited because he said it reacted faster, it, it glowed more, I, luminesced. He kept yelling mm-hmm. at me, it doesn't glow, it luminesces. And it lasted a lot longer. We were excited, of course, now we had scientific, not psychic, scientific evidence of what happened there. Underneath one of the holes, you could actually see a full palm print, and next to it, sort of a wiping motion, like a figure eight, where someone had to be down on their hands and knees cleaning up the blood when the fighting was over. It just took your breath away. It was so amazing. Again, so there's I'm actual, so you got evidence, evidence that, that the physical evidence of, of blood shed uh, from from a Confederate sharpshooter in the attic of of the Shriver House, because uh, listeners, uh, you you we've talked about Gettysburg on the show many times. Of course, on July first, the first day of the battle, Confederate troops occupied the the town of Gettysburg and used the buildings, uh, some of them as cover, and could shoot as far as Cemetery Hill and and up onto the ridge from there. Which uh, Nancy, as you point out today, the view is is blocked by more recent buildings, but it's certainly clear why they would have occupied that spot and knocked mm-hmm. the holes in the walls to shoot through. And then you found, finding those, those the, the, the paper cartridges, the bullets themselves, and then the blood stains, uh, it, it, it's a remarkable story. It is. We also found medical supplies that were hidden underneath the attic floorboards. Uh, we researched it and found information that said that the, it was called Lindsay's Blood Searcher. It was made in Hollidaysburg, Pennsylvania. And the research that we found said that it was uh, a patent, oh, it says it on the bottle, it is a patented heart medicine. Well, when the CSI detective was here, he took a little swab of that and he sent us back, uh, he said there were about 38 different components inside that bottle. Pretty much he said it was snake oil. And he said really, of the things that he found there, he believed it would have been made to help with diarrhea. And of course, Mm -hmm. we all know there was lots of that going on around town here. Definitely an issue. So you've you've got this incredible story now. The, uh, the Tilly and the the girls going out to the Weikert farm, uh, and again, her book describes the, the the carnage there. The farm being used as a hospital, and this fifteen year old girl trying to help out as best she could. Uh, they come back, and then they uh, discover what's what's left of the town. Uh, let me ask a, a push question in a slightly different direction. You, you've got the museum, you've got the building, uh, the idea of, of telling the stories in town. You've got the evidence, the physical evidence. You've got the written evidence that this is a, a house with a story. Uh, how do you interpret that? How do you, how do you now change that from a, a, a house into a story that visitors can, uh, can absorb? 
Well, um, we always start off our stories saying that there were, you know, three million soldiers that fought in the Civil War, and every soldier, north and south, has a story, but we'd like to tell you the story of just one soldier, and he happened to live in this town here. Um, I do not have a museum background, so mm-hmm. my husband and I kind of did what thought, we thought made sense to us, and we like it to look like a real house that people actually live in. So as you walk through the house, the parlor is very beautiful. Everything's set up, uh, again, very well-to-do people. The house is very nice. We go to the second floor. We show all the bedrooms. And as I say, I like it to look like a lived-in house. So in little Sadie and Molly's bedroom, there are toys on the floor. There's a bowling set on the floor because their father had a bowling alley in the backyard. Uh, Their bed isn't made. There's one shoe on the floor because goodness only knows what Molly did with the other shoe. Their homework lessons are there. They're always clothes laying out to give school students especially an idea of what little girls would have worn back in those days. Uh, And so we have uh, three bedrooms set up as bedrooms because uh, we are lucky that the Shrivers took an inventory of their home. So we, um, it wasn't 100%, but it gave us, it answered a lot of questions. Like we understand then that they, they had three furnished bedrooms, but then they, it seems, it appears they had an office uh, in one of the spare bedrooms because at this point, of course, they only had the two children. So we have the last bedroom set up as an office for a desk with George. We have a, a reproduction of an 1858 uh, town of Gettysburg map in there that was uh, very popular with all the soldiers during the war because it gave the Confederates an idea of where they were. And uh, in the inventory, that was listed. So that's why we do have one of those maps in there. And I'm guessing the reason they probably had a map is because both the Weicker farm and George owned that his father's farm at that point in time in 1858 when that map was made. So both of their names are on there. So probably that's why they would have had one of those. And then we take people up into the garret, the attic, and show them. Uh, again, I like it to be alive. So when you get up there, we have the sound of con- gunfire going off, cannons and gunfire far away and close up, playing in the background. It looks like the soldiers just left. You can see this on our website. We have two rifles on the floor. We have hundreds and hundreds of uh, cartridge papers on the floor. Every summer, once a year, we do a reenactment, and when you go up on the uh, take the tour that day, when you get to the attic, instead of the tour guide telling you the story, you get to watch the soldiers recreate the story. So you get to watch them shooting out of the attic window. You're always guaranteed to see a soldier die, because they do love to die. Let me ask, uh, what is the name of the website for for listeners who want to go there and and see? It it is shriverhouse.org, and that is S-H- R-I-B-E-R, like Maria Shriver, shriverhouse.org. So we're going to take another short break. We'll come back more, talk further with Nancy Goodmestead, author, of, author, no, director of the Shriver House Museum in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. 
you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Nancy Goodmestead. She is the director of the Shriver House Museum on Baltimore Street in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, a civilian house that was present at the time of the battle, occupied during the battle, uh, occupied by Confederate soldiers during the battle at one point. Sharpshooters uh, fought from the attic, and indeed one was killed there, uh, as, as evidence indicates. And there's also written evidence by a neighbor girl who uh, stayed with the, the family during the battle when they sought shelter at the Weikert farm out by a big round top. Uh, turns out not to be the safest place to be during the battle. Lots of fascinating things happened there. Um, Nancy, we were talking, I was asking about interpretation. You said you're, you're not trained with a museum background, but uh, you and your husband have really produced a, uh, uh, you know, just, Good sense uh, has worked, has served you well. It's, it's a very interesting interpretation. You mentioned the rooms are are furnished with uh, uh, period pieces or reproductions to appear as it did in 1860, 1863 when there were two little girls living there. One of the things that really impressed me when I visited uh, the second or third time was that as you come down, you've described the tour going through the, the occupied rooms and then up to the attic where the, the sharpshooter was firing. And then you come back downstairs and uh, at, at one point you go past a room that interprets how the house looked right after the battle, after Confederate soldiers had been into the house. And we made that go, yeah. yeah. We made that what did you do in 2013. That? Okay. Um, because in 2013 for the 150th anniversary, I really wanted to destroy the entire house because I wanted people to come in and understand what these people came back to. I must have interviewed about 100 people the year before, and about 90% said, I don't think so. (laughs) So it broke my heart, but I thought, well, you know, maybe we don't need to destroy the entire house, but let's just destroy part of it. Because when the 
Confederates took over the town, they built a barricade on the street uh, just next door to us and in, in, right in front of the house here. And they say they built that barricade out of anything they could get their hands on, and they really liked the empty homes nearby uh, because they would just raid those. And, of course, the Shriver's home was sitting there perfectly empty. So when Hetty Shriver walked back up the tree, street with her little girls and Tilly, she probably saw her sofas, beds, barrels, benches, and a great big heap out front. So now, after you have seen the beautiful house that the family lived in, and then you find out that from taking the tour that the Confederates were, took over the house, when we go back downstairs to the first floor, we walk through the sitting room and the kitchen. Uh, the sitting room was sort of like a family room in our homes today. And uh, we read many accounts from many families here in town, and we sort of compiled a bunch of them, and we totally destroyed those two rooms. Uh, we bought beautiful antique chairs that were already broken because it broke my heart to break them, and we mm-hmm. smashed them. My husband and I cooked them in the fireplace uh, of our home, and then we had them sticking out of the fireplaces in the Shriver's home, so it looks like the Confederates were either burning furniture or just using it for firewood. Uh, we have pools of blood on the floor, bloody rags, uh, smashed china all over the place. They raided the kitchen, so... Uh, Crocs are overturned, um, half-eaten food on the table. Uh, they are playing cards on the table. Uh, all the whiskey barrel bottles are empty and spilled over. So we really want, and people walk in there, and they just stop. They stand still. It's sometimes funny when we have a group of 20 walking through the house, and the first person is just, like, so stunned. They can't move, and everybody's like, what happened? What happened? What was, what's going on in there? And, so it, and we do a lot of school kids through the house, and I mm-hmm. really want them to understand what it was like for these people. And so it, I really believe it's made a big difference. I was a little tentative about it in the very beginning. I didn't know if people would be upset or insulted or anything, um, but in, we've left it that way because we've never ever heard a negative response about it. Everybody says well, it's I, much it, so realistic. I, it, it really... It, I had seen it before the change and after the change and didn't know it was coming, so... I was particularly susceptible, but there's sort of the Williamsburg syndrome. When you go into a historic home and it's furnished in the era of, of that they're interpreting, you everything is in its place. And even if it's the, the children's room where things are in a little bit of disarray, still there's a sense, there's the velvet rope that you can't go in and touch things. Everything is just so. The museum people have set it up just so. Uh, and so we're so accustomed to seeing traditional house museums where everything is just so. And mm-hmm. to come around the corner after you've spent you know half an hour in a house that's just like every other house in that sense, and come in, into this room of, of wreckage where these soldiers have just been living is, is very dramatic and, and very effective, I think. It really, really makes the point. Thank you. I never, I was not a history, uh, I wasn't, I didn't care for history when I was growing up in school, hmm. and I thought to myself when we do this, um, I, I want to do it differently. We do not talk about generals or anything like that here, or military maneuvers. Uh, I often think that we sort of teach history through the back door. By the time you leave here, you've just heard the story of a 27-year-old woman and her two children and her husband, and... When you leave here, you have a very good idea what happened to this town and how it was affected. Because um, we do have an area, too, downstairs in the cellar. 
The cellar is split into two different rooms. There's a kitchen to prepare meals for the saloon, then the other half is a saloon. But we have the kitchen cellar in the cellar set up to look like they were treating wounded soldiers. And in that room, that's where we really try to hit home on the ugly, ugly side of the war. With 160,000 men, and of course we love to remind people that there were no toilets here in town. There were 70,000 horses. When the fighting was over, there were more than 12,000 dead men and horses covering the streets of town and all around the countryside. They could smell the stench in Harrisburg more than 30 miles away, and they say that stench lasted from the 4th of July until about Thanksgiving. So people need... The couple of things that my husband really wanted to hit home with when we did this Mm -hmm. overall is, first off, we wanted to show people what a house looked like in the 1860s. There really was... The only place here in town that you could see was the Jenny Wade house. And she's got a great story, a sad story, of course. But Jenny came from a very poor family, so it wasn't typical. Now, the Shrivers are very wealthy, and that's not exactly typical either. But we we have a wonderful working relationship with them, and we send people back and forth all the time because we say that you really need to compare the lifestyle between these two families. So we wanted to show what a house looked like. We also wanted to teach people, and this is the hardest for people to understand sometimes, that when they are standing in our house and on the sidewalk on Baltimore Street, that they are literally standing on the battlefield. With that barricade across the street, with soldiers killed inside the Shriver's home, uh, between our house and down towards uh, where the Battlefield Hotel was, the bottom of uh, Cemetery Hill, was kind of a no-man's land with sharpshooters here and there in between. But this was battlefield. They were dying in the streets in front of our houses. Uh, People talk about being in their cellars and looking out their cellar windows and watching soldiers get killed, horses get killed, uh, cannon fire, uh, a nonstop gunfire. And people come all the time and they say, really? I never realized that it was fighting in town. They think it's all pickets charged, the wheat field, the peach orchard, and they just didn't get that this is the battlefield. And I think it is uh, important things that we're trying to teach people. And again, it's very successful the way that's interpreted. You mentioned Jenny Wade, and I would guess many listeners, uh, I'm sure, know the story that she was the only civilian casualty. Another remarkable fact that this battle raged uh, through an occupied town and only one civilian was killed. Uh, there's a line in, in Pierce's book where she refers to. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, the the family lost their horse to Confederate raiders, and the father wanted to get it back. But someone had told the Confederates that uh, the father was was a black abolitionist, and he never got his horse back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the implication, uh, and and Pierce Tilly does not say in her book, says I'm not going to name any names. Uh, but is that in fact Jenny Wade that she's referring to? Yes, actually, the way it's written in her book. Uh, Jenny Wade had a younger brother named Sam. Sam Wade was an apprentice for Mr. Pierce in his butcher shop. And uh, one day, when Tilly's writing her book, she said one day she looked across the street, and there was Sam Wade standing on the sidewalk. And then she said something like, well, I'm pretty sure you know his big sister, but I will not put her name in my book. So I always tell people it's good history and it's good gossip. (laughs) And that's one of those details, again, that that really makes the, the story for me because, again, everybody learns the Jenny Wade story when they start reading about Gettysburg. And, and of course, it's tragic that, that an accidental mm-hmm. bullet killed this innocent young woman. Uh, but then then the because she suffered this tragic fate, 
that's as much as the story goes. So then in, in children's books uh, and even some histories, she, you're left with the impression that she was a, a wonderful young woman doing every good thing for the union cause and so on. And from Tilly's book, you remember these are teenagers and they mm-hmm. gossip about each other and she doesn't <laughs> like her and she doesn't like her. Exactly. And they're so human. They're so it, human. When you, so right. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that, that's a great detail in this story. So we have just a few minutes left. Just to, uh, I wanted to ask you, how, how are things going? Um, what, what's the future of the museum? Oh, I hope that this story is told forever. Uh, I do believe, I tell people all the time that the Shriders are no more important than anybody else here in town or anybody that was around during the, the Civil War. It's just that because we stand on their floorboards, we, that's why we tell their story. And so it's important because when you come to Gettysburg, you can, you can go through Jenny Wade's house, yes, of course, but you read about Sarah Broadhead and John Burns and the Rupp family and all these other wonderful stories that they tell here in town. But I think what makes the Shriver's house so exciting is that you none of those other houses, you, can, you can't even walk through them. John Burns, mm-hmm. house is, Burns' house is not here anymore. But you can actually walk and stand exactly in the same spots where those Confederate soldiers were, where two little girls came home and found their house ransacked. You can touch the same doorknobs that these people touched. So I think it's a story that needs to be here forever. Uh, I don't know what will happen when my husband and I are too old to tell the story, but I keep saying I'm going to tell the story until I'm 92 because um, I just love what I do. And I am so, so fortunate that all the tour guides that work here, they all love the story as much as I do. If I find some new antique to buy and I stick it in the house, I don't even have to tell the people that work here. They'll come in and they'll say, oh, I see Hetty got a new this or that. And, <laughs> and they are all as passionate about, passionate about this as I am. And it means the world to me that they care as much as I do and my husband does about the story. So I hope but that it will be here for a long time to come. It, it is a great story. It is part of... Uh, I, Listeners, you know, I've mentioned many times the the tour, this hallowed ground uh, run by Stephen Ambrose Tours uh, that I serve as a guide on once a year. And that tour does, of course, go to Gettysburg. We spend two days in town, and the Shriver House is part of the tour. And I, as I said earlier in the show, the very first time I, I did the uh, this hallowed ground tour, didn't it was actually run by Matterhorn tours back in those days some some time back and had no idea what to expect at the Shriver House and uh, Gettysburg uh, has you know its ghost tours and its other uh, touristy uh, non-historical things and I really had no clue where this would fall on the scale and I was tremendously impressed and with the changing interpretation and the the dedication I've been more impressed since then uh, so now. When guests are, are on the tour are wondering, well, so what's this house? You know, we want to see the wheat field, we want to see the peach orchard. I say, just don't worry, it'll be worth your time, and it always is. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're just about out of time. I want to thank you, Nancy, very much for being uh, with us today. We're, say again the name of the, the website for uh, for your place. www.shriverhouse.org. So, listeners, check that out. Uh, order a copy of Tilly Pierce Alleman's book uh, at Gettysburg, What a Girl Saw of the Battle. It's worth your while. It's short, but uh, but very good. 
and uh, you'll enjoy it. And if you ever get to Gettysburg, don't miss the Shriver House. Uh, Nancy, thank you so much for being on the show tonight. Thank you, Jerry, for having me. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thank you.